The title of our message this morning is simply, Attention, Women of Israel. Attention, Women of Israel. I'm going to preface my introduction by saying this. I wrote this message like three times. Because this is not an easy message. So I'm going to ask for a little bit of latitude, all right? How should we share the faith? How should we do evangelism? When we speak to people about Christ and the gospel, how should we do it? Well, it's a good question and an important question, and unfortunately, a question that we sometimes answer incorrectly, primarily because we always want to be perceived as nice Christians. Of course, there's nothing wrong with being nice or kind or courteous. We should be. Amen? Amen. But there's also a time to be firm, to be straightforward, to be unvarnished, and to be unapologetic about God's truth. Jude 22 and 23, they're going to come up here on the screen, say it like this, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with sin. I think what Jude is saying here that you and I need to grasp from the Apostle Jude is that we have to know our audience. The people to whom we're speaking. We can't bring butterflies and rainbows to battle. But neither should we bring heavy ammunition to a conversation that requires grace and gentleness. Part of our success in the presentation of the gospel, which undoubtedly includes warnings for the judgment of sin, is that we know when to press and when to support. When to speak firmly and when to speak comfortingly. Well, today, friends, we're not going to see the latter. (laughs) Today, we're going to cover not a conversation that is covered in grace and gentleness and support, but instead, today, we're going to read a stern and harsh word, not to Israel at large, not to Israel in the northern kingdom, but in particular, attention Women of Israel. Two points for us this morning to look at. And the first is this, the indictment. Verses one through five, we find the indictment. If you'll read it with your eyes as I read aloud again, it begins like this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us another drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming when you, when you shall take, or you shall be taken away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out throughout the beaches, each one straight ahead, And you shall be cast out unto Harmon, declares the Lord. 
Verses 1 through 5 have our first point for us, and it is titled, The Indictment. To begin, I want to say that we have a lot of amazing, exemplary women. And Archer, can you tell how afraid I am to preach this text? I'm giving away books. I'm giving free compliments. I love the women in our church. (laughs) So don't take it the wrong way. I'm just delivering this word. If God speaks to you, then I hope that you will do with his word what you must. But I will also say this. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I yell at men all the time. I beat up on guys on a regular basis. If the word of God is tough on men, then we have to be tough on men. But if the word of God is tough on women, help me out, we've got to be tough on women. Not women in general, because they're women. But follow me here. Shallow women. Selfish women. Worldly women. Cloaked in a superficiality and fake religion that God refuses to honor and recognize. So don't automatically assume that God is speaking to every single female from the east to the west. God has got a difficult word today for women, but not all women. Women that fit under this heading, this description that we are referring to as the indictment. There are three things that I want you to note here. You can write them down. First of all, God indicts these women with a name. God indicts these women with a name. Chapter 4, verse 1, look at it again with me. It says, hear this word. Now, you may recall from last week that there are three hear this word sections. Chapter 3, verse 1, hear this word. Chapter 4, verse 1, hear this word. Chapter 5, verse 1, help me out. Hear this word. So Amos has these sections that are Interesting, prophetically, we're going to continue as we go through the book of Amos to see the variations of his prophecies. In this particular section, we have a hear this word section. In other words, listen. Listen to what's being said. Okay, so we tell Amos, okay, we're in our listening positions. We're ready to hear this word. And he says, Hear this word. Okay, now he's going to funnel it down. It's not just everybody. He says, you cows of Bashan. Now, with with this epithet, the cows of Bashan, it tells us that, that God isn't speaking to Israel as in all of God's people, and he's not speaking to Israel as in the northern kingdom, distinguished from Judah. No, He's speaking specifically to the women of Israel who he refers to as cows of Bashan. Wow. Bashan was an area that was well known for its excellent cattle. So when God calls them cows of Bashan, I don't think he's he's making an insult to their physical qualities. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying, listen up, cows. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what God is saying instead is he's making a reference to their opulence, their voluptuousness. Yeah, 
but not physical voluptuousness, the voluptuousness of their lifestyle, their abundance, the kind of life that they're living. Listen up, you cows of Bashan. It's all satisfaction all the time. I think that's what God is saying. And furthermore, have you ever seen a cow do anything but stand around and eat what doesn't belong to them? Think about it. This leads to the second aspect of this indictment. So, so he, he refers to them by name, right? He gives you cows of Bashan, but then he, he goes further with the indictment and he gives them a description. Listen up, you cows of Bashan. And then he gives this description. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, not a good place, who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and who say to their husbands, I'm going to need another mimosa. (laughs) After the name is directed at them, as if it's not enough, right? As if the epithet is not enough, he gives this description, and God describes their behavior. Again, behavior fitting an animal that does little to improve itself, to discipline itself, or to make itself better. I've never seen a cow read a John Maxwell book. I've never seen a cow take a self-help class. I've never seen a cow meditate in the evening time on the hill watching the sun go down and praying that God would make it better. You know what cows do. They just mull around and they take from the man who owns the property. God says in the second half of verse 1 that they oppress the poor, they crush the needy, and they say to their husbands, Bring us another drink. There's no striving for excellence over convenience. There's no depth over shallowness. There's no striving for respect over materialism. It's all about them, and it's all about them all of the time. So that's the epithet, the name, the description. And then thirdly, and finally, under the indictment, God indicts their religion. God indicts their religion. Look at it in verses four and five. It says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, etc., etc., etc. So in verses 4 and 5, we see what's interesting. It's that these women who are being indicted by God, they are what we would call religious or spiritual, but the words found in these verses indicate that their religion is useless and their religion is false to the extent that God says, go to Bethel and transgress. Go to Gilgal and multiply transgression. You see, these locations, Bethel and Gilgal, were home for the synchronistic religion of the day. You know what synchronism is? It's when you take two things and you sync them, right? You blend them and make them one. Synchronism is a word that we use to refer to religions that are different 
but become mixed. So if you were to go to New Orleans, and anybody been to New Orleans, that great filthy city? Love New Orleans. Okay. And you go to Jackson Square, right? Right across from the Mississippi River where the rats are this big. Cafe Dumont is there, right? And, and, and there's this beautiful square there with this great church in the Jackson Square. And there's people everywhere reading your palms and doing tarot card readings and offering you opportunities to do seances and magic. Why? Because when the Roman Catholics went to Haiti, the black magic and voodoo was mixed with Catholicism. And now we have a synchronism. So there are Catholic saints with those who practice voodoo. In the Hispanic culture, it's the same, right? We refer to them as santeros. They have the beads with the saints. Every now and then, they have to wear all white, no markers, no emblems or anything, because they're sanctifying themselves to dedicate their life, right? Women who are pregnant or have, might have a health issue, you can invite someone who is your representative or your medium, and they can put you in a bathtub with different ointments and, and, and aloes and stuff, and, and they can pray for you, etc. to ask the saints to help you. Listen, that's paganism. There's just enough Catholic, Catholicism to make people think, well, they, they mention the saints and maybe Jesus. Yeah, but this is what we call synchronism. This isn't godly. This is paganism. So we see what happens through the development, historically, of our colonies. They picked up people. They brought them to the states as they were colonizing them and building them. And what happened? We see a synchronism happening in our country. To this day, you see it. You guys know this. Some of you may, have even, have this, may even have this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but you know people in your family who have candles with emblems on them, or you walk into a house and there's an elephant with the butt turned around toward the front door to keep the evil spirits out, right? Every now and then you, you stick two bucks in the elephant's mouth. Oh, you think I'm stupid. This is paganism. If you go down the aisle of Winn-Dixie and pick up your diaper wipes, you know, your, your wipes, and then the next part you pick up a thing of Jesus or some santo, that, that's paganism. A relationship with God is through Jesus Christ every moment of every day for eternity. When we talk about saints in the Bible, the word saint means holy one or separated one, and those saints are those who have trusted Christ. So if you are a Christian here today, the Bible says you're a saint. You say, oh, that's kind of intimidating. Hello? I don't spend an hour yelling at you every week because God thinks you're weak. God hasn't given you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. That's what 2 Timothy 1.7 says. Not that he's empowered you to be weak, but that he's empowered you to live a life, to use our word, of sainthood. That you would be different from the world. That you would be removed and set apart. That you wouldn't carry around the same sin as everybody else. But that you would be salt and light and godliness in this particular context. Not that you would dress like the Kardashians. But that your beauty would be from the inside out. 
Not that you would act and take pictures of yourself and post it on Instagram as if your life and confidence as a woman, it was dictated by how many likes you have on that Instagram account, but that you say, I don't need the likes. My God has said, you are beautiful because you're my daughter. We have a lot of synchronism happening in our culture today. We have a lot of people who say, Jesus plus. We have a lot of people who say, I'm a Christian, but I also think that we can do this. When the scriptures clearly say, that's a sin, man. Now, I'm not saying that we walked in here today without baggage and some of you are just being difficult. I'm going to say it as calmly and as lovingly as I possibly can. There isn't one person in this room today who didn't bring baggage. Amen? Amen. We all have our baggage. Some of our baggage is pornography. Some of our baggage is premarital sex. Some of our baggage is promiscuity. Some of our baggage is alcoholism. Some of our baggage is what the the book of Hebrews calls the root of bitterness. Listen, you got that root in you, you're in dire straits, man. It doesn't matter who you look at. It could be the guy who's not pulling off the green light fast enough. You're just infuriated because you have so much bitterness in you. You're not approachable. You're not likable. You're only lovable by the grace of God. Each and every one of us brought baggage in here today. But I'm here to tell you that this word is not coming against us because we can't be saved. This word is coming against us because those who are saved have an expectation to live up to. If we would call God our Father. The truth of the matter is, is each and every one of us, you and me, males and females, it doesn't matter. Although this word is particularly geared toward women today, men and women, say amen if you're listening, we can't compromise our convictions for popularity. We can't. I don't care if it's June and every business is gay now. I don't care. You say, I'm really surprised to hear you say that. What do you expect? This is my life. You really expect me to stand up here every Sunday for an hour and compromise on something that's black and white? Now, can we trade places? Let me tell you when I'm surprised. I'm surprised when I hear you say amen, but I don't see you live amen. You know what direction we're going here. And it's not to the world. It's toward glory. And God help us to look like glory on our way. Amen? We all got baggage. Each and every one of us is wandering toward our Bethel or our Gilgal, and God is saying, keep it up. Keep it up, and you will be judged. Listen, I drift, I wander. You drift, you wander. Amen? But we've got to hold each other in a state of conviction and say, listen, God expects more from you. God expects more from me. That's not what God has called you to. That's not what God designed you for. 
in this case, it's the compromise of the gospel plus. The gospel plus. Church, there comes a time when your religion is vain and your belief system is moot. When the reality of our behavior comes before God's scrutiny and we must give an account for the lives that we live. Note here another thing. These women are being held personally accountable. These women are being held personally accountable. And here it is. God is holding women accountable for their own lives. In other words, ladies, say amen if you're listening. You have to answer to God for your life. I say this on a regular basis, and I know that sometimes you're like, you know, every time you do that, it pricks me in a soft spot, and I'm sorry. But there's a lot of you here, ladies, who come, and you're faithful, but you don't have your man next to you or a man next to you. And I know that's difficult. I know that's a challenge. I know that presents a myriad of issues that you've got to sort through in regards to the gospel. It'd be so much easier if you worship the Lord together. Amen? It'd be so much easier if you were on the same page when it came to the kids. It'd be so much easier if you were on the same page financially. It'd be so much easier if when you had your bouts of depression or difficulty, if your husband stopped you in the kitchen and said, just stand still for a minute, babe. Let me pray for you. And put his hands on you for a reason other than intimacy. And say, let me pray for you, baby. Let me pray for our Father to give you strength. I know that some of you are in that situation. But I want you to note here, in the grace of God, I want you to note here that the problem these women are going through in their lifestyle choices isn't blamed on the men of their day. The men have gotten some judgment too already, haven't they? And it's not blamed on the religious leaders of the day. They have gotten their blame too, chapter 2, verse 12. You make the Nazarites drink. You tell the prophets not to prophesy. The men have taken it to the chin too. And I, so I'm, I, I want you to understand, I get it. I get it that you're here, but you're divided. And I understand, but I want you to receive this. Ultimately, we're all responsible for our own relationship to Christ. Ultimately, we're all responsible for our relationship to Christ, each and every one of us, male and female, in spite of all our baggage and our difficulties. I don't want those things to keep you away from Jesus, guys. I want you to go to Jesus and go, this stuff is terrible, and I don't know what to do with it. God, help me. But let's face it, if, we're, if we ignored the challenges facing men and women today, it wouldn't be helpful either. Men and women both need the gospel today. Men and women both need the gospel today, perhaps more than ever. But today's about women, so let's focus on it, all right? I'm only halfway through this point. Wow. Ladies, 
you do not need a man in your life. You don't. You don't need a man in your life. You need Jesus. But I understand you don't sleep with Jesus. All right, let's be candid here for a minute, right? The kids are gone, and the only kids that are here don't understand. You don't sleep with Jesus. So I understand as an adult, you have intimacy needs, right? You have intimacy requirements. You have loneliness that becomes a mix, and you're like, you know what? It'd be a lot easier if I came into the kitchen and opened the fridge and my husband smacked my butt. It'd be a lot easier if my husband sent me a text at 11.32 on a Monday and said, I miss you already. Husbands, if you're not doing it, you need to up your game, by the way. It'd be a lot easier if that was the case. But can I tell you something? You really don't need that. You need Jesus. Those things are amazing. Those things are great. But what you really don't need is the wrong man. And we're producing them left and right. We're producing them left and right. And sometimes in your weakness, in your vulnerability, in your loneliness, ladies, I'm not saying this ugly, you settle. You settle for a man whose mother ruined him. And he's coming to your house because he wants another mother. And he wants you to to tie his shoes and, and give him his breakfast. And remind him what responsibilities he has during the week. And what bills need to be paid. And ask him, hey, there is not a towel genie. Do you mind picking up your towel from the bathroom floor? You don't need that guy. You need a man. The world is full of guys. You don't need a guy. You need a man. A man who says to God before he says to you, God, help me to be the man this woman needs. If you don't have that man in your life and you have Jesus, you're better off than having Jesus and the wrong man in your life. Your goal in life, ladies, shouldn't be to arrange things so that you actually have zero responsibilities. It shouldn't be to arrange your life in such a way so that you sit idly by and tell your husbands, bring me another drink. You shouldn't be arranging your life to look through Sunday to Sunday and go, how few items are on my calendar this week? Don't be a cow of Bashan. Commit yourself to excellence. Commit yourself to growth. On the contrary, you should be waking up every morning. You should be swinging your feet over the bed, and you should be praying, God, how can I glorify you today as a woman? Now, for each and every one of you, that's a different answer. Some of you are grandparents, grandmas. Some of you are moms. Some of you are married without children. Some of you are divorced. Some of you are young. Not dating, not engaged, nothing. Wherever you are, it's a different season in your life. But God will meet you in that season and answer that question. This is how I need you to glorify me today. So I want to share with you a couple of things. First, when it comes to asking God how you can glorify him, 
First of all, that begins with your relationship to him and his word. In other words, are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in your knowledge? Are you worshiping regularly, especially on the Lord's Day? You see, this doesn't really apply to women or men. It applies to all of us, but today particularly to women. And when you feel discouraged and you're fighting depression or you feel like everything is going so great in my life, but you're out of alignment with God and he's speaking down to you saying you're worshiping at Bethel instead of where you should be, this is the word you've got to receive. Is my relationship with God where it should be? Secondly, where's my relationship with my family? Where is my relationship with my family? Now, this is in quotation marks. Everybody's family is different. For some of you, your family means you're still living at home. That's your family. For others, you're married, married with kids, maybe grand. You've got your own family dynamic to consider. What you should do is not look at my house or your neighbor's house or somebody else's house. What you need to ask God is this. How can I love and serve my family well? Don't worry about everybody else's family. Wake up and say, God, how can I glorify you today, me personally? How can I serve my family? And thirdly, how is my relationship to my covenant family? In other words, this family. The family you have a covenant with here. Can other young... Ladies, are you listening? Can other young women look up to you as an example of godliness? If you don't have young women, women seeking your counsel, seeking your advice, you need to ask yourself why that is the case. The scriptures teach us plainly that the older men need to invest and bring up the younger men, and the older ladies need to invest and bring up the younger ladies. That's our responsibility. We don't have that as an option. That's not plan B. God says the men have to show the young men how to be men. And the, young la the older ladies need to show the younger ladies how to be women. This is one of the difficulties that we have in our country right now. We have no rite of passage in America. You know, in Judaism, it's the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. In other cultures, it is other things. But in America, what's the rite of passage? What's the rite of passage for a boy? What's the rite of passage for a girl? The truth of the matter is, is we continue to give the young people coming up toys, advantages, incentives, but we never actually give them responsibility. You see, after a rite of passage, there's an expectation that adulthood will be assumed. We have to continue to invest in those who are coming up after us. So listen, don't just mull around like the cows of Bashan, people. God is calling you to engage with him and to live your life with vitality and commitment and work ethic and consistency. Not just lay around and call for another drink. And this indictment, it comes with a guarantee. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, the Lord God has sworn 
by his holiness. And you may remember what holiness is. Holiness is that attribute of God that means separate, clean, pure. You get the idea. God is not tainted with sin in any way or fashion. That attribute is described by Isaiah three times. He says, the Lord Almighty is holy, 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 untouchable, unreachable. So when God says here, he has sworn by his holiness, it means that God is taking this word seriously. Now, I want to quickly wrap up our second point. It's the refusal, verses 6 through 13. And out of the interest of time, I'm not going to read the entire section again. I'll just hit it kind of going down. But this is our final and main point. We have the indictment, and now we have the refusal. What's interesting is God is telling them, I have given you multiple opportunities to adjust your course, but you've refused. Comfort will do that to you, by the way. When you get comfortable, beware. Verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places. What does that mean? It's a reference to a lack of food. Their teeth are clean because they don't have sufficient food. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. You see, part of the blessing of God to his covenant people was, if you obey me, if you walk with me, I'll give you the former and latter rains. And what that meant was, I'll give more rain during the rainy season to you so that your harvest is even more plentiful and lasts even longer. It was a blessing. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 11. If you want to make a note of it, I'll encourage you to do that. Deuteronomy 11, 8 through 12. Oh, there's the address. Okay, this is what God says. He says, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong, and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them, to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it, it's not like the land of Egypt. Amen if you're listening. From which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon this land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. You see what God is saying? I'm watching your house. I care about your house, and I'm the one that's in charge of the blessings in your house. You walk in my way, and I will bless your home. You don't walk in my way, I will not bless your home. You see, in the land of Egypt, they drew water from the ground. They drew water from the Nile River. But in Israel, the water was from the heavens. They relied upon the rain. So God says, yeah, that's my rain. I'll hold it back, or I'll give it in abundance. Verse 9, blight and mildew. 
And all the women here go, well, I have bleach. I'll take care of that right quick. (laughs) Blight is kind of interesting. It has to do with a strong, with the effect of a strong wind that dries out the grain. And it browns it prematurely. And mildew is the result of a parasitic worm. It kills and contaminates all the greenery. So both the crops and the trees are ruined. Pestilence in verse 10. This would be disease, probably the result of contaminated water, maybe the result of war. Verse 12, he says, prepare to meet your God. Now, this this isn't an exciting announcement. It isn't like, oh, God is coming. This is an, an announcement of judgment. Why? Because all these judgments have been leading up to the ultimate judgment, and it says after each leading judgment, Yet you did not return to me. You know what that idea of return is? Repentance. That's literally the word repentance. It means you're going in a direction, and you realize that the direction you're going in is wrong. So you turn around, and you go back. It means you're going away from God, and you repent you turn, you go back to God. It has to do with an acknowledgement of our wrong and his right. Listen, we are a stubborn group, amen? What we have here is simple. God is saying, I've given you multiple opportunities to realize your sin, to realize your wrong, to repent and return to me, but you have refused. And the stubbornness that we have, all of us, each and every one of us, can lead us to our judgment. What does the proverb say? Pride comes before the fall. <laughs> 